With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Stepping Into Frame, our podcast all about women in screenwriting. And if you haven't listened to us before, please feel free to like, share and subscribe to the script department. It's free to do so. And we have a tremendous number of screenwriters talking about all sorts of amazing things, screenwriting-esque. We talk about archetypes. We talk about women in screenwriting. We talk about the top 200 list, Helen. Yeah, movies. 250. Top 200. Top 250. 250. There you go. Top 250 of movies, and we see whether they deserve their place, and that's a podcast that Helen runs. And now we even have a Patreon that you can um, be a part of, which is very exciting. And today I am joined by Helen. Hello, Helen. Hello, Fiona. And we're here to talk about the final two episodes of Lessons in Chemistry that we have been watching with great anticipation over the last several weeks now. Um, so, Helen, here we are in our final episode around this very interesting show. Uh, let's start with your overarching thoughts on these two episodes as a collective, if you will. Um, how how did they stack for you? What were your thoughts looking at these last two? Um, <clears throat> well, I mixed mixed emotions with these two because episode seven was, you know, sort of rooted in Calvin's backstory. I absolutely love this episode. I thought it was just so beautifully written. There was so much about the theme and there was a lot of the 360-ness that we like to see in script writing. There was a lot of um, setups and payoffs and most of those setups, you weren't really aware they were setups until they were paid off. And I loved that so much. I thought it was really good. Episode eight was completely opposite absolute disappointment I was infuriated by the oh ending gosh. I oh no <laughs> I struggled with it I think I'd made my piece at episode five I think <clears throat> that this was going to be very different from the book and that they because they'd chosen to focus their store their sort of um secondary character storyline down Harriet's path instead of Fran's path which I can reveal now everyone's watched it hopefully that Fran was supposed to be the one they were supposed Zot was supposed to go back to the Institute and Fran was supposed to reveal herself as also having had a failed PhD because of similar circumstances. And then between them, they were making changes at Hastings and that was sidelined for Harriet's, which we agreed in the last uh, episode of this, that, that, that was worthy cause, but there was a problem with the ending of this that uh, I'm not happy with at all. Okay. Whoa. Okay. Lots <laughs> to unpack there. So, <clears throat> um, and I, I, d- I didn't feel quite as strongly as you did about episode eight. I agree absolutely on episode seven. And I got to the end of episode seven and I thought, oh, isn't this lovely? Here I've been quite critical about this show from the beginning and, you know, in episode two or episode three, definitely was ready to almost walk away from it. I thought, this is just nuts. There's, you know, we've got all these problems with it. But I'm glad I stuck it out because I really, I've enjoyed it more and more. And then when I got to episode seven, I was very, very happy um, with that episode equally. So we'll dig into what what we both felt was a really great 
piece of writing. Um, but then episode eight, yeah, I think there were some challenges with it and there were a few disappointments um, I felt as well. But I probably didn't feel quite as strongly as you, I think, by your immediate response. <laughs> so um, we shall dig into that a little bit further too. So maybe let's kick off with talking about the good things about episode seven. So we have um, we have really this story, this episode is called The Book of Calvin and this is very much around Calvin's backstory. So it looks at Calvin's life. We go back to his time at St Luke's Boys Home where he uses his chemistry skills for what becomes illicit activities. Um, this gives us some really good depth into Calvin's character and his motivations in his life moving forward. It was interesting on one hand, I think, to have the backstory of a character that we have not seen since episode two. So, you know, in terms of as a living as a living character, um, an, an interesting technique, but I guess we find out later why we, we hear about that. So tell me what your thoughts were about having this as the episode and, and, and about Calvin's backstory and how that was put together, particularly from a writing point of view because it was structured very specifically, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and I... I think its placement was quite right. It 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 pulled together all of those themes that the theme of the double helix with these two sort of uh, storylines intertwining the origins of life, science versus religion, and the nature of coincidences as well. I I thought that all of that really pulled together the the, the previous episodes and made a really strong point that this is what the theme of the show is about, and this is this is what you can expect. It, how you can expect it to end. So I, I I did think it was very well placed. It was a bit unusual to kind of take us out of the the present timeline and just slam us into the past again. Um, and I felt that Calvin's character was very altered. And I had a bit of a problem with this, with, with Elizabeth Zott in, I think this is where the, the book and the film differ, is that both of these characters seem to be their 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 characteristics sort of they became less eccentric and they became more normal you know they had normal range of emotion normal reactions and i i think this is part of the reason i didn't like the ending was because what they've done with both of these is they've kind of made this suggestion that um you know that you can be you you can kind of, you can overcome your your neurodiversities, and that you should. And uh, I didn't really like that because I liked Elizabeth Zott for her her suggested neurodiversities, um, and I liked Calvin for that. And I felt that they were quite well matched. That in in a place where normally they would be on the outside, they had found each other. So I really I really warmed to that and really loved that. And I just struggled a lot with the fact that they'd taken what was considered their flaws and fixed them by the end of the story. And it just made me think, okay, well, like, is it like, what is the, what is the ending message here? Is it that a flaw must be overcome or is it that you can function highly and fit in when you're more self-aware? Because either way, I felt that that message was quite negative and it's sort of saying that's not okay to be different. You need to conform to be normal to end up happy. And I just didn't like, I didn't like what they'd done to Calvin in episode seven and what they eventually did to the same to um, Zot in the episode eight. In episode eight. Yeah, and I do agree. And I was wondering when I'd watched episode, well, actually, probably probably at the end of episode eight, actually, I was wondering about, I noticed very much that shift in both of their characters to be very normalised. And actually what was exciting about the both of them and in some ways problematic from Zot's point of view was that they were in, both incredibly distinctive characters, both very different, very unusual from both their peers and also society at that time. So there was a couple of layers of complexity and and difference going on there. And we were drawn to them because of those differences. I think Zot's differences and her internalizing and her quietness and her um, reclusiveness proved a problem in episode three which we talked about with, with Calvin's death and that mourning grieving period was difficult from a filmmaking point of view or a screenwriting point of view but they were both very very distinctive 
However, by episode seven and eight, I absolutely agree that they were really normalized. They were flattened out as characters. And I wondered to myself whether I was just getting used to them and whether it was actually more a symptom of my becoming comfortable with the characters and noticing their differences less or whether it was in how they've written. But I do think it was in how they were written because I think your points about, you know, um, it, it felt a little bit like you can overcome your challenges and become a more um, almost a compliant you know, you fit in with our community and where we are from a societal expectation point of view if you just persevere and, you you know, yeah, it did, it did feel like that, which was a bit sad really, wasn't it? Is, it? It's really sad. And you, I, I think the thing that I've really noticed about it, in particular with Zot, is, you know, she was very anti-wearing any of this fashion stuff, anything high fashion on the show, and she just wanted to wear a lab coat. And I think in the book, she remains in her lab coat to the last episode. And in this, they stylized, ver- you know, a version, a dress in a white dress in a similar style to a lab coat that still had pretty bows. And and it was kind of, you know, her gradual acceptance into becoming this normal woman that I didn't, I didn't like. I I didn't like that she wasn't able to preserve her own values of, of how she wants the world to see her um, and her practicality, her, you know, her practical approach to that. Why had that changed? And I just, but there, there was kind of a bit of a, you know, the the summation, the summation of the Reverend, I think, had just sort of, they'd come to the conclusion when they were discussing back and forth through these letters that um, Calvin had described him and Zot that they were made for each other and, you know, talked about how that that was that was his why, that was his meaning of life, and you know they still felt in in that episode seven where we got to see Calvin slightly more um, relaxed, I guess. Um, you got to see them matching each other, so they still felt made for each other. But that but the the two characters in episode seven and eight were not the characters we saw in episode one. So no, you're absolutely right. There were parts of them. I think parts of Zot's character where she um stood up in front of the camera about the protest and then when she changed the um sponsor at the end you know there were moments of where she had retained that strength of character that we'd seen at the beginning but in terms of her broader general characteristics she'd shifted a lot and I know there is also a character arc going on in there and there is that there was that moment where she was um uh chatting about oh, who was she chatting to about um oh oh the um the her what would be her mother-in-law character calvin's mum um who said to her i'm i'm here to help you i want to help you but i i think that you don't want to be helped and she said oh i've i've learned as i've gotten older that helping is helping helped is a blessing and so you know you think well how much of that is a character arc because there was a character arc there with her opening up to her neighbours and her friends and creating more of a community. And we saw that community in that last shot where she's walking around the house and we're seeing all those different groups of friends, which you may have a problem with, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> but, you know, there was that bit. So there is there is a question about, well, how much of that is character arc versus how much of it is changing the character. What did you feel like? Did you feel like it had... It, in, do you feel like it was bigger than it, it seems to me like you feel like it was bigger than a character yeah, arc I, this was about a character ship I totally feel like they changed her character I feel like she lost some of those strong inspired compar- like characteristics that she had at the beginning that just made her stand out and make us root for her because she was she represented everything that was against the society that she was in and rather than getting people to warm to her and accept her for who she is she's fundamentally had to change to be able to be accepted into this society which was not what she wanted in the first place and like this wasn't who she was and I I think as a resounding message of how we internalize our own flaws and how we present them to the world yes of course if you know if you're a total asshole then yes you should probably look at changing yourself but fundamentally if you're neurodiverse for example and you only see the world in one way how much is it realistic that you can change who you are rather than other people giving you the space and the perspective to 
to appreciate who you are and what makes you special. And I, I loved, I loved that Calvin and and Zot had that, that they had found each other in the mess of this patriarchal, you know, nuclear society that they had found each other. You know, this this rare occurrence, this coincidence that they'd found each other. And um, I, I feel like it was just ruined at the end mm. by that. Mm. Right, we'll come back to that, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so one of the other things in Episode 7, one of the things that I particularly enjoyed was uh, seeing Calvin's relationship with Reverend Wakeley unfold after it's, it, it initiated at his lecture at Harvard and how it evolved into a really meaningful exchange um, of letters talking about science and religion and his personal life. Um, and what I really liked about this was I thought it gave us, but it was a really, from again, from a writing point of view, it was a really lovely technique to do a number of things, to give us backstory about Calvin and Wakeley, to build their characters as well, to give us some really good character insight, but also to cre- bring this theme through and this idea of science versus religion. And I really enjoyed the conversation that went back and forth with those letters and and even though on the one hand it's building they're building a friendship on which was beautiful but they also were really talking through some really big critical things that thematically tied up lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At the end, in a really interesting way. What did you feel about that? relationship in in episode seven and how that rolled out yeah I loved it I I thought it was brilliant I think it spoke a lot to their character and they touched on uh sort of racial discrimination throughout this series and for Calvin to have absolutely no awareness of it and for that not to be a barrier to being able to connect with someone was was such a poignant point to make so I really celebrated that I really loved that and I felt that their relationship was very genuine. The reason that they were connected to one another was really palpable. And like you say, being that debate, that constant debate about um, God and science. And the, the I just loved it when they started talking about faith and how that wasn't actually based on religion and that you could be scientific and you could be religious and both of you could still have faith in something. And I just, you know, I love the, the, the playfulness that they... They, they weren't offended that one was trying to prove the other one wrong. And and even in the end, what they came to the conclusion was, well, okay, maybe science is the how, but maybe religion is the why. And I, I love that that challenged the idea that you can actually believe in both. You can believe in science and you can believe in God. And I, I just, I felt like that was actually such a well-rounded um, conversation that they'd had. It, it yeah. was It was beautiful. I loved it. It was beautiful. I thought so too. And I I wished for more of it because it was really lovely and I love the way it brought the thematic through. And I really liked the way that they used some really clever plot points to help uh, build the, the positions of both of them in their respective states of religion versus science and, and how um, Reverend Wakeley talked about the idea of, you know, a miracle and and Calvin's acknowledgement that meeting Elizabeth was a miracle and that, you know, well, is that, isn't that proof that there's something more powerful than science? And, you know, those, I thought they were just really intelligent and perfectly pitched and really wrapped the story in nicely and showcased all these lovely parts of both the characters and the narrative and all that depth. So I felt like from a screenwriting point of view, it was such a brilliant technique to use and worked incredibly well. So it's a good tip for screenwriters to consider those sorts of techniques to bring in rather than, you know, we we always love to avoid exposition so much in, in those big chunky bits of 
understanding backstory and character and that's a really perfect example of how to do it really well and I I also feel like you could at the end of episode six have gone what are the chances that this reverend had a long-term friendship a deep friendship with Mad's dad and she sat there saying I can't find him I don't know anything about him and he knows loads about him and it, it but they justify it because there's such a, a, a heavy, they lean heavily on the idea of coincidences, that these coincidences are the stuff of religion and of science. And actually that the miracle that anyone is conceived in the first place comes down to a, a, a whole bunch of coincidences. And again, I, I, I love that this, this was something that just wrapped right around some of the existing setups that we'd had that we weren't aware were setups. So I, I just I thought this was just such an excellent example of of how to to just sit like for I, I'm trying to sit there and analyze it and it, I'm enjoying it and I'm not paying attention because it's just so deliciously laid out. I think it's a brilliant case study. Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Although the uh, the flip side, the pragmatist in me would say, well, that's a really handy theme to pull through about coincidence <laughs> because you give yourself a lot of freedom to write then, don't you? If you bring through coincidences, you major thematic and one of your major thematic. Yeah, but they could have overdone it and they didn't. They didn't. They were very no, sparing true. with the use of it, which which I thought was really good, you know. That's true. Yeah, they did use it in, in a very uh, appropriate way, I thought, too. So definitely. So, okay. So also in episode seven, we get an insight into the anguish that Calvin experiences over his um his him receiving letters from strangers claiming to be his family and highlighting this emotional toll of his past did you get a sense um, did you feel like that was a, a really a, an appropriate thing to pull through or, or a, an effective thing to pull through because we hadn't really understood the emotional impact on him in fact we had we didn't get a great deal of emotional depth of his experience just purely because we didn't have him around long enough. So how did you find that as a, because it's quite a chunky piece of the, of the episode. And also there were some moments of real, um, you know, there was that moment of sort of friction between him and Elizabeth when he barked at one of the lab hands for bringing him more of the letters. And he's like, you know, I told you I don't want these. And he was very on, on the edge and we'd never seen that before. This was a real, different side of Calvin than we'd seen in the sort of beautiful moments of their early relationship. How did you feel about that as a a kind of an an additional sort of storyline effectively in this Yeah, we we talked before, didn't we, about how, you know, the the mention of the letters in the first episode was just such a brush-off comment that it it wasn't long-standing enough for us to understand it that early on. Um, But again that what they they did to sort of bolster that was they they gave they gave him this uh book that he was obsessed with with great expectations and there are several reasons why he was obsessed with that book and elizabeth reads out this really poignant section from the book um at the at the very last closing moments of the episode which was just beautiful and you could assume yes that's it but if you know anything about great expectations, it's, um, you know, it's a story about a boy who strives to exceed his own expectations as well as everybody else's. And eventually, un, you know, expectedly, he discovers the origins of his life. He finds out who his father is. And that is something that was that was key. It was never, I want to find my mom. It's, I think my dad has come to see me. And, you know, it, there's this link with his dad. And then there's this link with this book. And, so I, I kind of felt like I, it was a really it was really powerful. And when we got to understand why, who that person was and how the the headmaster had, had lied about him in several different ways and why he'd done that, um, you I think you could feel that loss, that sense of injustice again. Um, so I, I quite, I quite liked it. I quite liked that there was this, this promise that it was going to come back around and that there was, there was something that was going to come from this. And I thought it was quite lovely that what had transpired was his, his mother had set up the foundation to support the school, which had then inspired him to go to that 
particular place because he wanted the funding. You know, he chased the funding. So he was closer to his mother than he actually thought he was. And um, yeah, I just, I loved it. I just loved episode seven. Mm. I just thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely, wasn't it? And it, mm. but it was very disappointing through episode seven and eight when you, when it becomes clear that the lies that were told from the boys' home, um, the, you know, the leaders in the boys' home repeatedly for various different reasons, which was, and and I guess the tragedy of Calvin's tale became clear in episode seven and eight around those missed opportunities where, um, you know, where he, things could have been different for him but weren't based on other people's um, manipulation of his situation and something that he ended up having to deal with. And so you can totally understand. We then realised why he was so upset. And in the book he talks about it a lot, about this woman that keeps writing to him saying she's his mother and he thinks that she's this lunatic. So, you know, there's a, there's a nice, there was a nice resolve to that which worked really well. And so you talked a little bit about the Great Expectations and the Great Expectations conversation will kind of lead us nicely, I think, into talking a bit more about Episode 8. But it, the use of the of Great Expectations, this book was quite a fascinating, again, from a screenwriting point of view particularly, quite a fascinating technique because it becomes the investigative twist, if you like, at the end of Act 7 where Mad finds the library book of Great Expectations in the Remsen Foundation Library that pushes the plot forward really beautifully. And then it comes back a few times, which we'll talk about in through the through the rest of the episodes. Um, but it's, a re- it's really interestingly woven through and does a few things around, gives us a, a sort of a symbolic um, connection all the way through the piece. So the book was used in a couple of ways, um, really well. So there's this symbolic connection which, you know, on the broadest possible level symbolises hope, this idea of a better future that Calvin was looking for. It's also the, it shows his desire to rise above difficult beginnings, mirroring the the novel's protagonist, Pip. Um, and, Helen, you had a thought about, the yeah. father of his, his dad is called Maddox, Mad, Maddie, Maddox, right. Madeline. See, I hadn't picked that up. I know that's very good. That could could well be a thing. Um, it, it was <laughs> or, also or not. It, it probably could be a coincidence. Or, maybe not. <laughs> could be a coincidence, or something that we've constructed because it suits our <laughs> yeah, narrative. Exactly. And that's good too. That's fine too. Um, so it's also used as a plot device. So um, obviously, the discovery of it in the library moves the plot forward. Gives Mad and Elizabeth the clue to continue on gives them the name of the foundation so it's all perfect from that point of view but there's a lovely emotional resonance in it too where we get this idea of Calvin's character development it's this tangible connection to his past and his sort of I guess unfulfilled dreams and his aspirations and a lovely connection through to Mad and that sort of intergenerational thing um, which is nice and and it gives us an emotional resonance too because it gives us real emotional depth I mean I, I found that incredibly touching I love the quotes that um, Elizabeth pulled out they're really like really moving and and the way they tied it really authentically to Calvin's story I thought that was yeah. really smart and yeah, yeah which really and well. it's about coincidences that whole quote is about the coincidences of one day isn't it so it's that's exactly right that's exactly in. right the coincidence yeah, one. yeah it does it does and it, it's really clever and also from a practical point of view it gives us um, a narrative closing so you know when Elizabeth references it again, she's now a lecturer. She reads the expert excerpt from it that closes the whole series. It um, encapsulates the journey of the characters and their evolved perspectives. So, at that moment, let's let's work backwards a little bit on episode eight and let's talk about that ending. Mm-hmm. And what did you think about that, Helen? absolutely hated it i hated it i really hated it i you i can't tell you how many capital letters are written in my notes for episode underline bold yeah in red (laughs) exclamation marks right um Okay. okay so the the two things i think i hated was 
in this in these last remaining episodes the lack of her initial want and her need fundamentally was to be a chemist and there wasn't enough of a drive it was still very much focused on the television show there was no mention of our home lab no mention of the research what has happened to this desire to discover what dna does and what it is and everything where's all that gone and it was just a very passing flippant comment she made with her daughter in like a three minute scene of you know well chemists belong in a lab mum you know and that's it that's it that's all we get and there's that up until that point there's been no link reminder whatever with with her real passion which is chemistry and the other thing that i really really hated was how um that what harriet and zot ended up with at the end so harriet ended was delivered this tragedy you know, she'd been working towards this goal of getting the the highway stopped from tearing down their community. And, you know, and she she didn't win. She got she lost. She lost out. And I hated even more that Zot didn't earn her place at the Institute. She was rewarded with it. She it just it felt like an afterthought because it was delivered in one of the last scenes. And it was almost like the theme was more important than the plot. And I kind of guess that it is, but at the same time, it's not because Zot's rewarded for, you know, she accepts, she inevitably changes and begins to love and let people in and accept help. And she's rewarded for that. But in the book, she fought and worked hard and her driving focus was always the lab. And she found kinship with, with Fran. And, you know, it turned out that she was someone of equal intelligence and passion for science. And, that achieved a better balance with people along the way than Zot having to completely change her personality. And I hated so much that Harriet did what Zot did in the book because she, she didn't get anything for her trouble, but you know, it was more true to life and slightly more inspiring to see someone who fights for what they believe and wins with intelligence and tenacity rather than someone who approaches a task with all those qualities and gets nowhere. And it just made me think, what is the lasting message here? What is the takeaway from this? You know, be like Harriet and lose Mm. or be like Zot and conform and you get everything Mm. you wanted just for Mm. doing nothing. And it just, I hated it so much. Okay. Wow. Okay. I think we've got that. (laughs) No, but I think you're absolutely right about if we go back to the really the the um almost the inciting incident and the whole character set up and the world set up we've got somebody who we've got a character who has is fighting for with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky <gasps> No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Survival of what she wants to do, who she is. It's like it's almost like a fundamental identity crisis that she has remember those opening scenes where she physically assaults a lecturer who comes onto her and she loses her place and a phd program whatever it was because of this all this terrible misogynistic behavior that was so rife back then and she was dealing with all of those she comes up against the you can't be at the university anymore because you're pregnant unmarried and all those terrible things that we saw so heavily laid on us right up front and it was almost as if none of it continued and it all disappeared. And it was just, yeah. And I, so I think from her character arc around the, I think it almost like she, it was almost like the character, the narrative arc, her narrative arc of her getting what she wants was actually ignored. But her getting what she needs emotionally, so her internal journey was met, I think, in the, in the series. And, it was almost as if the priority of those two flipped and that we started the story with an, a character driven by a by a personal drive to be a particular person but we flipped and we got re- what got resolved was her finding love and community through people around her by letting people in which she hadn't 
which was a which was a result of the society that in which she lived and the constraints of that. So it sort of it sort of flipped a bit, if you like, in in a very odd way. And I think you're absolutely right about the fact she got it handed to her. Yeah, it, it was almost like a coincidence too far for me. Nepotism. Was it because that we wasn't call it nepotism? <laughs> she got the job <laughs> through nepotism. <laughs> exactly, and it didn't happen in the book. And actually, no. if it had happened in the book. She would have turned it down because she was so principled. Yeah. She wouldn't have put up with that, mm-hmm. right? You know, that that was the character that we met at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's really, really important points to to raise was that she she really I don't think her character arc or her narrative arc really was fulfilled in the way that you would look to. Um and then there were also some strange decisions I felt around things. I thought your point about Harriet is right in that. I think I agree with you in the sense that I think we empathise with the plight of Harriet probably more. And even though she fought and failed, she really fought. Whereas um, Elizabeth started fighting and almost like gave up. And that because it wasn't that important after all. But then it kind of was, but then it kind of wasn't. But then it kind of was. You know, it was like there wasn't that I must do this. I'm Because remember also about... I think it was about episode three when she finds out that the university has stolen her yep. and Calvin's work and she's just livid. Yep. But now it's like, okay, don't worry about it. Yeah. It's totally like yeah. that. And I kind of thought to myself, okay, so are they making this, are they making a point? Yeah, I can hear a lot of people screaming at their phones right now going, yes, well, in real life, you know, back in the 60s, that that particular racial argument would have lost. But, you know, this is this is fiction. It's not you know, it's not it doesn't have to be. We can reimagine the past and rewrite it in a better and uh, more wholesome way. We've this is what we as writers have got the opportunity to do. We can rewrite those wrongs. And um, I, I just just kind of thought it, maybe maybe these writers here are trying to make a point they're trying to say you know I want you to feel the sting of Harriet's loss I want you to feel enraged enough that you won't put up with this in today's society and I possibly could have carried that feeling off but the last scene we get is everybody having an amazing Christmas and no one's bothered by any chips on shoulders or discrimination or anything like that you know and it, it, that you know, maybe if Harriet, her whole life, you know, the buildings are being torn down while Elizabeth's the other side yeah. of the street with her, you know, baby sham and, and a TV yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, I probably <laughs> would have felt pretty bad for, for her. Uh, well, so how would how would you have finished it then? I think, I don't how know. How would you have ended up? I think probably a discussion, like, Harriet, what are you going to do next? What what are we going to do next? How are we going to stop this? Because effectively, they've, they've all lost their neighbourhood. Their, their homes are going to be torn down in the new year. And they're there having a Merry Christmas. That doesn't make any sense. You know, no, no matter what amazing community they found between one another, why why would you still be celebrating such a disaster? So um, I, I would have given Harriet what she wanted. I would, have, I would have stopped the bypass. I would have, you know, got that rerouted. I would have let her make history. I would have, I would have totally done it because that's what should have happened. And that's what we as viewers want to see. We want to see someone putting in, you know, fighting. She fought the fight with intelligence and class and tenacity. And, you know, th- that is how you should fight racism and injustice and uh, it's Mm. just just to kind of say you can do all of that but you'll still lose and and then Mm. be happy about it I just thought was just miles off the mark I just really did yeah it's a good point isn't it and you know the other alternative is you make them all barricade the TV studio or take to it with yeah. flamethrowers and you've got a great intro to, episode, to series two. <laughs> series two. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's really Elizabeth teaching them goes. all about how to make ki- um, kitchen sink petrol bombs or something. Molotov cocktails. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Using <laughs> items from the refrigerator. She's just been yeah. grooming all these housewives, <laughs> turn them into terrorists. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would have been actually really. That would have been an amazing that. twist. I, I, I would like that. that. Yeah, <laughs> and and there's the interesting thing, isn't it? It's like that's kind of like that's really exciting. It's like push the envelope a bit more because it did pull back into the conservative, <laughs> didn't it? You know, in terms of the 
everything's okay. We've got this sweet, you know, the walkthrough of the house and all the different rooms and all the different friends and everybody's getting along and it's all lovely. But it's like, yeah, but there would have it it would have been much more exciting to kind of go, okay, well they're not taking this. You know, Elizabeth is not accepting that handed on a plate um, opportunity. You know, Harriet's not taking this lying down. The community is in revolution. You know, it's like we're going to keep going with this. That would have been exciting, I would have thought, and I would absolutely hang on to that. It it was a lack of bravery, and I suppose really that's a that's a consequence of an adaptation of a book that ends relatively happily. So you know, which didn't have that Harriet storyline in it, and you know, and it, it didn't have the it didn't resolve the same way with the mother-in-law character as it did in the. TV show, but still it, it had that positive ending. So perhaps that's the issue is, you know, there isn't a second book there. So, you know, it gets a bit tricky from that point of view, but I would have loved that personally. Um, let me talk to you a little bit about that. We'll ask you a little bit about Fran. Because I thought Fran's resolution was quite interesting too. When again, from a comparative point of view, in the book you've got a character who has has a I guess a failed PhD would you call it that or an attempted PhD and is absolutely Elizabeth's equal intellectually and they form an alliance and it's really lovely to watch and um but in the TV series she's she still forms an alliance but that they they don't go into that sort of well it's not that kind of a meeting of minds if you like in the same way and I thought that was kind of a fascinating decision I love Walter I have to say I thought him as a character I love him love him love him love him and but I thought to resolve Fran's storyline by getting a crush on Walter and asking him out mm. was a little bit of a, a a bit of a not I was gonna not say lazy but kind of a bit lazy you know like yeah I think it, it sort of was like ah oh, well that's a bit expected that's what it was it's not lazy it's expected, expected. and it was kind of like, that's a bit yeah. disappointing isn't it it was you know, disappointing did you find that yeah because they set her up in the first episode as someone who was would exceed your initial assumptions she was very cross with elizabeth for making assumptions about her that you know she wasn't you know and it, the, the friction between them was that initially what you're perceiving is that where Elizabeth is intelligent, um, Fran has this sort of street smarts intelligence that exceeds Elizabeth's. So, you know, they could learn something from each other. And in the book, you discover that actually, you know, uh, Fran has both. And it's that Zot has to achieve a, a more balanced approach there. So uh, I, I just felt they did her a disservice putting her in charge of... Um, answering questions and making the office look nice and then giving her the ultimate conclusion of I'm going to fall in love with the first guy I met on screen and yeah and I, I felt they just did Fran's character a disservice and they could have made her still that strong independent intelligent character and not have her fall in love because if you read the book like that's not the point of the book the point of the book isn't about about um it's not about love it's not about boxing people into this kind of idea it it's about it is about connection but not just it's not romantic connection is it I, I don't I didn't see it about romantic connection and I think this is a very big difference between the way that perhaps I'm gonna stereotype myself here perhaps men write scripts about women and how women will write scripts about women and I think that that there is a, a long way to go still um, yeah, with that. there is still that uh, tendency to write a a the conclusion of a woman's story is to find someone who makes her happy and emotion, you know, from a love interest point of view, complete her. Yes, exactly. God, I'm almost shivering saying that out loud, but <laughs> complete her. Um, but it's and it, and it's a terrible, terrible thing. And women don't want to read those. Women read those books. They don't want to see those films. It's and I, I try to make it a principle even when I write rom-coms to not tie it up with a bow at the end because that's not what life's about and that's not the story is I like the question of maybe maybe not yeah you know that, we'll that interests me I like the we'll, we'll see, see. Yeah. my terms or, we'll see that's yeah. a really good ending to a rom-com it's good isn't it we'll see yeah exactly 
Like or the for now, you yeah. know, that's also okay too. This for, is now, for now, maybe yeah. we'll see. That's what you want to watch, not that. Oh, of course, and yeah. you know, which you know, which we've talked about in, in a few a few different uh, guises for the films that we've reviewed. But and one of the things I particularly liked about this book is that it did not fall into those tropes. And I also really liked in the TV series and the book that Elizabeth stayed widowed single Elizabeth through the there was no wrapping up of or no potentials in the film studio or anything like that which was terrific because I was a bit worried about that I thought please don't bring someone in which and we end with a kind of a oh there's someone on the outside you know something maybe will happen so it was really disappointing to see that with Fran I thought because she could have gone in so many different directions and it was just and also in a way um yeah, I just I just felt it was not yeah. really. I mean, it didn't they, add any value. It didn't. I mean, <laughs> what they could have done was they still could have played the card that she had this failed PhD in chemistry or science or you know physics or whatever it was, and they could have they could have made her the new host. They could have carried that scientific and ana- analytical approach to cooking and life's problems and feminism and all of that lot. They could have put, she could have handed that over to someone she trusted and knew was going to do the same work that she was doing. And they missed that opportunity entirely, which is neatly bringing me on to why did Kenneth bend over backwards to do everything that Elizabeth wanted after she told him she was going to quit? Like we, I know. We've never even seen Kenneth. And here he is going, <laughs> you're fired. And yes, you can put tampons under everyone's chair. So it's like, Where did who he are come you? From? And why are you saying <laughs> yes to this crazy woman who's just quit? You know? Yes, I don't know who your and, host is going to be. You can worry that. I'm going to go now. Yeah. You know, it was just. And why are you firing people that we when we never knew you existed? It's yeah. like, it's random. Really random. So that it's, was yeah. more than a coincidence. I did not like that. <laughs> no, that was very, that was a very, um, yeah, that was a very um, happy accident, wasn't it? Ha- it was. But I did, I did have a little laugh out loud when she said that Tampax was going to be the sponsor. And I, I did think that that was actually very clever. Um, and I, 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 possibly could have worked it out but I was just enjoying you know sort of seeing how that was unraveling that I didn't didn't think too much about it so um I, I loved the awkwardness that that would have created and had a little laugh out loud at, at the horror of uh, talking about those kind of products on on television in the 60s which it did make me definitely laugh. definitely and I, I actually thought that perhaps in um it through episode eight that maybe Fran was going to get the gig as the next host because it made perfect sense that she would. And also it because it raises the question in a way of, well, where's again back to um Elizabeth's narrative arc, our character arc, both. Um why would they why why did she do all that if there was no legacy from it? She brought all these women on board, she started to make this changes this that woman stood up in the audience saying I've been here before and I'm now enrolled to be a doctor and everyone and she's like I knew you could do it and it's yeah this is sisterhood all the good stuff and then she walks away from it and it's like well what happens to that community of people that you've influenced for the better that's the end like why not pick that opportunity up just to leave it you know from a again from a writing point of view leave a really good legacy for Elizabeth Episode eight was a car crash. I know that's brutal, (laughs) but there were just too many problems with it. I just, I, yeah. (laughs) Right. Got it. So um, summation then. So give me your overview of this as a, now you've looked at everything. Now you've watched the whole series. Um, What are your thoughts? What would you change? Would you watch it again? How do you feel? Where, Where do you see as the sort of big opportunities if, somebody was going to say to you in five years time we're going to rewrite it do it again <laughs> Helen what, what are you, you going to make of it uh yeah. well I would I'd ditch the talking dog sorry 6 30 I would just because it, it I think it changes the genre too much I would keep the energy of the comedy up uh I would get rid of dead Calvin haunting the place and I would completely uh, whoever wrote episode seven needs to write all of them, I think. I think and it would be very egg on my face if it turned out that uh, I haven't got them in front of me, but it would be terrible if they actually wrote the same episode. But it, I I just think that 
episode eight is where you know you can forgive everything that's happened before as long as you get a meaningful wholesome well-rounded ending that means something and it didn't so episode eight is what i would say no go back and redo that please yeah i think that's good uh, good feedback I would definitely get rid of the dog, um, absolutely. That obviously, as you know, I think if, if episode eight was your trigger episode, I think episode three was my trigger episode with the talking dog. I just could not come to grips with that at all. And, again, as I suspected, it, he didn't come back, so he didn't come back and talk again, and that was like, oh, God, really frustrating. Still a bit annoyed about that. So, yeah, no no dog. I would have uh, reworked Fran. I think I would have kept Fran aligned aligned with her original storyline, Um I think there could have been more leverage in that way. Um, I probably would have um, kept Calvin in longer. I think I would have, I would maybe restructured a little bit how we built him through just to rely less because I think my only point in a way is from a momentum point of view, we spent a lot of episodes five, six, seven in retrospect in terms of lots of flashbacks lots of history and I think that's fine as and it did tie up which was fine we got this the resolution to those storylines quite succinctly by episode eight from the Calvin side however I probably would have rebalanced a little bit and had it a little bit more in the first half so we were relying less on that as a technique in the later part Um, it just felt a little bit heavy because I guess I'm a bit, um, I get a bit precious about pace and I think you do tend to lose a bit of pace when you use, when you rely too much on flashbacks or things like that. Um, and I think, and I think the only other thing is I would have retained the humour from the book and the sassiness. There was a bit more sharper dialogue, sharper characters, just, um, Elizabeth was, had a bit more sass. I've said that before, but, um, I would definitely bring that through. And, and again, something that pulls through the end. So, yeah, that would be my <laughs> my grand changes. Yeah. And it, how much more delicious would it have been if they'd concealed the fact that he died, just, you know, while she's, you know, engaging in doing doing some, some of these few, more future present timeline activities and then to discover that, oh, my God, he died and she's been doing this on her own, yeah. you know kind of you know like making it from that point of view I think you could have you probably could have concealed that for a little bit somehow I think so too and Mm. and probably that would have gotten over your problematic episode three of Mm. this episode of grieving where we have this you know this quietness and this stillness and the need then for this yappy dog (laughs) (laughs) which I will get over I will get over He was very cute. He was was very cute. He was exactly like the dog I thought he was. Well, I think it was the same breed. Yes, ditto. Ditto. Well cast. Yeah, well um, well cast. I'm sure that was hard. Probably too much dialogue. (laughs) 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 Anyway, right. Any final concluding thoughts on the series or anything? No, I I don't think so. I I think adapting books generally is a really tricky one because you either need to be so faithful to the text or you need to be you need to take the elements that make it you know that, that that really make it what it is why people like it what what these characters are about what the theme is and make it your own and there was a bit too much of six of one half a dozen of the other in this and i i think that is what let it down I, I absolutely loved the storyline with Harriet. I thought that was so beautifully unfolded and poignant and different and emotive. I thought it was great. I just hated the way they paid it off and what that message left me with. Um, and it, when you consider that in sacrifice to what we lost with Fran, I, the outcome on both points wasn't worth it. So, you know, like that oh, is so difficult, isn't it? But I think if if maybe maybe this had been ten or over two ten episodes or two series, I think you could have had longer to to really tell both of those storylines and pay them off properly um, instead of rushing it through. But 
I, adapting books is not for the faint-hearted and I we're just going to see more and more and more of it I think um because yeah, there are. are so many books out there and why wouldn't you go for a and, ready-made yeah. idea rather exactly. than and it's a big thing isn't it lots yeah. yeah lots of production companies are now in that space where they're just um you know lapping up books and and turning them into screenplays and it's yeah I agree I think it's a very a very tricky path to tread and I wouldn't um but, you know, it's not an easy task, by any, and that's really important to caveat that sort of our whole conversation, right, when we've been, particularly those moments we've been a bit critical about the show, it's, it is an acknowledgement that it is a really, really hard thing to do to adapt to text, and particularly when you've got a text where there is a mass audience that love the book. You know, that makes it doubly hard. You've got all these fans that it, the moment you deviate from the original text are, sort of screaming at how terrible the show is and it's and I don't think that's fair at all but I I do think that's a pretty good summation or or good position is either either align yourself really to to closely follow that original text or take the elements and deviate and be pretty brave and kind of take it somewhere somewhere else so people don't feel like it's a bit is it another is it this is it exact is it the same I don't know some bits the same some aren't because that's actually worse in a way, isn't it? When you've got people going, oh, well, that bit was exactly the same, but that bit wasn't. You know, it's like you want the audience to just not even compare it in a way. Either I'm re- replicating it exactly yeah. or I'm influenced by it exactly. and that's it, you know. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a hard balance to strike, I think. Um, I, and I guess if I was if I was going to give any advice, it would be read the book and watch the series or the, the film, you know, or, or and you know, if there's if there is an existing um, visual example of of a book, you know, then just absorb it, even if it's a play. That that adaptation of it will tell you so much about the key themes that you need to pick out. Um, and uh, something I love doing is totally geeky, but I buy the you know the like the study guides, the the GCSE study guides because they break down every chapter they break down every character they break down the themes the settings things that have influenced the writer you name it it's brilliant you can't get them for every book but if you're writing a classic if you're adapting a classic then you know half the work is done for you you just need to tap into what's already there and you know just total immersion i'd say is the way forward yeah i mean there are some uh writers who um don't want to be influenced at all by the original uh source material do they which is i think in a in a way is quite i mean that's quite brave don't you think i kind of just say i'm not going to read it at all i'm just going to make up my own mind well then what you're not basing it on that story are you you're you're not respecting what's already been written and i think you know my question would be then well why not just create your own characters or plot or story that you know are have nothing to do with this why do you need to base it on that particular why do you need to announce that it's based on this particular story if you're not going to appreciate the craft that's gone into that original story and understand where those characters have come from and and think about what their characters backstories might be and read between those lines and make your own assumptions about about that genre and that theme and um i I just like if you're going to adapt to work you you should absolutely respect the original text because somebody has gone through the process that you're about to go through and you you know that that is a that's a piece of artwork that needs to be celebrated and respected I think rather than just flippantly gone well I like that bit and not that bit so I'm just going to do that and then say it's from that because I'll get more credit you know I think Mm. that's yeah that'd be doing it a disservice interesting I've been reading John Truby's book Anatomy of the Genre or Anatomy of Genres and it has um awoken my brain to genre and how much really getting clear on the genre that you're writing in can help you enormously I mean I've always liked genre but I've never really I've never really adhered to it super closely um but I've been doing a little bit in some script editing and just dived into this book and it's unbelievable in terms of the just the depth of understanding of of, you know tools and structural advice that you can get just by looking at at you know doing a deep dive in the genre as well so that that's been really interesting and I think um, I've learned a lot about about that and think if I were to do something around 
a book adaptation, I'd definitely be really diving into genre really deeply and making sure that I'm you know, pulling out all the good stuff from. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that actually, because Lorna and I covered Pride and Prejudice. We compared 1995 with 2005 recently. And one of the conclusions we made was where the TV show was so faithful to the text, the genre of it really lies in satire because the whole thing is is about irony. It's 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 satire. But the film really rooted itself in the romantic genre and that came about through the dialogue, through the cinematography, through the, the scene choices that they made. And they really, they sort of really condensed the, the narrative and the storyline. I don't think it was to its detriment. You'll have to listen to it to find out if Lorna felt the same. But it, it was an interesting comparison to make because they, they changed the genre by by being slightly more conceptual about the the actual story. So they're a good case study, I think. It's really interesting, isn't it, how it will fundamentally change the way you write by shifting that genre and, um, yeah, and just making some decisions from a genre point of view, Um, yeah, as you you write. Um, I was talking the other day about, and I know I mentioned it to you and we haven't talked about it since, but um, the Kenneth Branagh um, Mm. Poirot film, the latest one, (laughs) Uh, what's it called? Murder in Venice. <laughs> oh, the haunting the in Venice. Venice. No, the haunting, haunting in Venice. That was yeah. it. Haunting in Venice. And that's and I'm not. I won't go into it because Helen knows how I feel about it. But uh, we won't. So I won't talk about it here. But um, I will say that was in that film. They um, they pushed out of the thriller into the horror genre, um, or you know, attempted to do so, and made some fundamental shifts in the script and the film from there. And it was a really fascinating case study for me about when you, because I felt like they put their toe in the water of horror, but didn't push right through from a genre point of view. So didn't follow many of the conventions, but sort of did a bit tokenous conventions. So, and that's interesting because that shifted, I think, the effectiveness of that film out of what is traditionally a very well received um, Agatha Christie, Poirot, you know, we know what we're going to get kind of, film so yeah it's fascinating anyway we're tangenting now we're yeah, tangenting we have we off, could we could go off, off. couldn't we we could <laughs> talk, start talking genre so thank you for that terrific chat um about this fascinating it's been good uh, series appreciate yeah, your time it. in talking about each of those episodes and so um i don't know what's next to talk about but it will be fun so um i look forward to chatting with you again helen and thank you again for your time And if you have enjoyed listening to this, um, again, as I said at the beginning, please feel free to like, to share, and to subscribe to the Script Department. You can check out what our global team of screenwriters are up to at scriptdepartment.net and follow us on social and listen to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. It's been lovely having you and look forward to hearing you again soon. Or you'll be hearing us, but look forward to you hearing us again soon. (laughs) Thanks. See you later.